Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be focusing on verses 5 and 6 in particular, but I think we'll try to finish up what is this introductory statements, this salutation that Paul brings at the beginning of his letter. And that goes through verse 7. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, or was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom are you also called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. Now, I want to read to you that verses 5 and 6 again, and, and this time I just want to read it to you through the New American Standard Version. Through whom, Paul writes, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. In the King James or the New King James, you say, for obedience to the faith or to accomplish obedience to the faith. Here, the Paul would write, or we'd read it this way, to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. I'm going to forego an introduction for you this morning, and we're just going to go to the very first point, and we're going to look through this text, verses 5 and 6, and we're going to see here first that Paul says that he has received the grace of apostleship. Most commentators think that the we there is kind of like a royal we. It's an authorial we, and that Paul is actually referring primarily or singularly to himself. There is, to me, a sense, an allowance in which when he says we, although Paul has established himself as an apostle, he is casting something of the shadow or something of the inference of that type of life upon all of those who have come under the apostolic ministry and have responded to the gospel. And so Christians that are rising up throughout the Roman Empire have, to some extent, and ourselves, received grace and some measure of apostleship, not in the same way, not the apostleship which we recognize to be historically or we understand to be those individuals who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who have received first person his instruction, but we push on and we will move on from their A, capital A, apostleship in a manner of being sent ourselves. That's what an apostle means. It's someone who's sent. Well, remember that Paul said that in his introduction that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. And we ourselves are bound to Jesus Christ when we believe and trust in him and are won by his grace. Then Paul says that he is a sent one of Jesus Christ. That's what an apostle is, sent one. And we ourselves, in a sense, have been sent out as well to be a people and ambassadors of his reconciling power. Paul then goes and says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And that's a very interesting phrase. That word set apart is actually the root to that word is the very root that you get the word Pharisee. And that's what Paul was before he became an apostle 
who have been set apart for the gospel. And as a Pharisee, Paul was very meticulous in following the laws of Judaism. And as a part of those laws, he wanted to maintain being set apart from the world and anything that would taint him and make him unholy or unclean. And in particular, he understood, as the Pharisees understood, that because the Gentiles didn't follow the proper rules for what they should eat and the unclean things and the clean things that they should come in contact with, you could never trust whether if you came in contact with a Gentile, that they might defile you in some way. And so they maintained a boundary around them and all the Gentiles in order to pursue their set-apart nature to follow all the laws that God had given them. Now Jesus meets Saul, you might remember, on the road to Damascus to persecute the church and to arrest the church and put them in prison. And at that time, the Lord Jesus brings Saul to a conversion or surrender to himself. And the Lord Jesus also at that time commissions Saul to be a sent one of the gospel, separated out to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go to the Gentiles. And so here is Paul who had been disciplined himself to separate himself as a Pharisee from all the Gentiles. And now, now Saul says his life is to be given to take the gospel to the Gentiles and go out among them to be, he'll say later on, all things to all people. That's what Paul has done with his ministry. He's traveled throughout eastern and central parts of Roman Empire to make the gospel known in these lands. This labor has been carried out by him. This ministry has been conducted by him. Paul now tells us, and this is where we get to the grace of apostleship, Paul now tells us that all this labor, all this work, all this energy that he has put out to take the gospel to the Gentile nations was not done in his own power. It wasn't a matter of his own undertaking. He didn't do it in his own strength. It was not possible. He carried all these things out. He conducted all these things by the power of God. God had given him an enabling for it. That's what the word grace means here. Grace refers to an enablement or an empowerment that God gives to an individual freely that that individual cannot do. That thing that God has called him to do, that man cannot do without God's enabling. One commentator has said in effect that what Paul is saying is that he has received the grace for apostling, that is, for being an apostle. Paul has been enabled to do the work that is put before him as an apostle because God has enabled him. God has empowered him by grace, by this gift. Here's an application for us. Anything God calls you to do, any command that God gives you to do, he also gives to you along with that command an enabling a grace which you're to receive that will assist you or empower you to carry out that obedience and that work that he brings you to. The life of faith is in part a life of receiving the enabling grace of God to answer God's calls and God's directives upon your life. And Paul's life is a life that demonstrates God's grace. Now, as we've said, I believe all of us are small a apostles in a sense we're all called upon by God to live our lives in the advance or seeking the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ we ourselves are slaves of Christ and we ourselves are then sent ones of Christ and we ourselves are to consider ourselves set apart as a peculiar people to bring to the world and bring forward the gospel as far as God would send us and to do this we have to bow before that command and that call and that identity We have to accept it, and then we have to live it out, and we can't live it out unless we receive God's enablement, God's grace. 
Christian is an individual who is constantly living and seeking by faith the grace of God to fulfill his call upon our lives to bring the gospel to all those that we come in contact with. Now, let's look at this as our second point. What is the aim of our gospel? What is the purpose or end? And this is where we're going to put the focus of and the primary attention of what we're going to talk about this morning. Here, Paul says it's for obedience to the faith. That's what you read in the New King James or the King James in the NASB. It says to bring about the obedience of the faith. The outcome of proclaiming our gospel is always to bring people to a point of submission to that gospel. We think of this as saving faith and This is more than just a mental acceptance of truth of the information of the gospel. It is a trust or surrender to that truth. And here's what we can say about saving faith. Saving faith is a surrender or a trust in a proposition and in a person. It is a propositional faith and it is a personal faith. The the propositions of the gospel are things like we're sinners. We are separated from God. Because of our sin, we are under the sentence of death, spiritual and everlasting death. But Paul has written to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 5, that Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, has died for our sins in our place, that he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the grave, and he was seen by many witnesses. And these are propositional facts. These are propositions that... We are to believe unto salvation. But added to this propositional belief, we also take hold personally of Jesus Christ. We don't just trust in doctrines. We put our trust in a person. And yet in trusting in that person, we don't trust in him but for a reason, but for a cause. We trust in him because of what the proposition declares he has done for us and the promise that he's made to us and the work that he's accomplished for us. We trust him because of the witness that was given of his sinless life and of his death on the cross and of his conquering resurrection and of the proclamation that he has provided all that's needed for us to be forgiven of our sins, for our death to be vanquished and for us to live again spiritually and be brought into reconciliation with God. And so our faith is propositional. It's, it's a faith in these truths that are declared, but it's also personal. It's a faith in the one who is the truth. And they go together. And so saving faith is both made up of faith in Jesus Christ and in what we learn he's done for us. That's actually not in question here. So when we read this faith, that's what we're talking about. What's in question is what does it mean by obedience to the faith or obedience of the faith? That's the part that we need to answer here. But we need to set that as the ground, that this faith is something that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. But what does it mean when we're told that we are to proclaim the gospel up to or for the point or of leading people into the obedience of the faith. Are we being told that the act of faith itself is an act of obedience? It's the obedience that is faith? Or are we being taught that the act of faith in Jesus Christ and faith in these propositions and faith in this person will then lead us into obedience. In other words, does obedience belong to faith or flow from faith or is faith itself an act of obedience? That's the question. Is Paul's aim to bring people to saving faith or is he wanting to bring them into a life of obedience that's produced by saving faith? Get that? A little bit of a difference. Here's the answer to the question. Yes, yes, yes. Both. All of the above. 
The language that Paul deploys here seems to let both ideas come through to us. There is, in essence, an obedience that is simply expressed in believing, and there is an obedience also that falls out from believing, and we're going to look at them both. They're both the aim of our gospel message. We want people to obey the gospel by believing in Jesus Christ, and at the same time, having believed in him, obediently believed in him, we want them to so believe in him that they will follow and obey all of his commands. But first, let's look at this obedience of faith as obedience as faith. Obedience as faith. The propositional and personal faith that we have in the gospel is a compelled faith. It is a compelling faith. The truths that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, that there is a God who's made you and created you who your sins are against, a God who requires of you a righteousness in order that you can be with him, and a God who will judge you for your sins and your lack of righteousness. According to the Bible, all these propositions that I've just shared with you are something that all human beings are being made aware of. The Lord Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit is working in the world, convicting the world of three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. It's like a cipher. I've mentioned this before. This is a passage that we keep coming back to because it's like a cipher that helps us decode what's happening in the world all around us. It's not something we understand simply by understanding the passage. That's taken from John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. It's not because we've just simply broke down the Greek and we've looked at the grammatical historical analysis of the text and we understand the different syntax of the words and so we can say this is what the words mean. But it's also something that if it's true, we can explore and see in the lives of people all over the world and what you see in the lives of people all over the world is they know they're sinners that they long to be and they're searching for a righteousness that will bring them into some state of transcendence because there's an unease in their life and also that they know they're not righteous and so they also have this great sense of judgment their religions are all wrapped around somehow mitigating their sin increasing some level of righteousness in order to avoid judgment But every religion, every false religion, is built around somehow dealing with these three things. What does it tell us? It tells us that the Spirit of God is working in this exact way in the lives of people. He's convicting people of sin all over the world. He's convicting them of their need to be righteous. He's giving them a desire to be righteous, and they know they're not. He's also presenting to them this reality that judgment is facing them. We see this throughout the world. We see it everywhere we go. And this is telling us that God is laying the groundwork, the Spirit is contending in such a way to convince people of these truths that, in a sense, they're without excuse as he brings them to the truth of the gospel. Also, this same passage in John chapter 16 tells us that the life that Jesus Christ has lived, his sinless life, his perfectly righteous life, the fact that he offered himself up on behalf as a sacrifice for our sins, a sacrifice that satisfies what we lack and provide salvation to us by faith in him is also something that the Holy Spirit is actively communicating to those who learn this truth. And so in John 16 verses 8 through 11 where the Lord Jesus speaks of this convicting work of the Holy Spirit, he speaks of a turn, a historical turn in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit where now through the witness of the church and the proclamation of the gospel, people are convicted of these truths even more forcefully because of Jesus Christ. 
They'll be convicted of sin because they believe not in me, he says. They'll be convicted of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. My resurrection or my ascent into heaven is a demonstration of my absolute righteousness. And they'll be convicted of me because the prince of this world has been judged at the cross. All of the sinister purposes of the enemy that we are bound to were exposed. His desire to destroy God and to exalt himself above God. And that's in the heart of the rebel. That's what we see is the reality behind our own resistance and refusal to turn to God and our own rebellion. These are things that the Spirit of God is actively doing. Now, I am not capable of knowing to what extent the Holy Spirit is doing that in the life of an individual. I can't look into the heart of a person and know to what extent they're being convicted of their sin or they're being convicted of righteousness or they're being convicted of judgment. To what extent the Holy Spirit is pressing upon them the reality of who the Lord Jesus is when we tell them about Christ and exposing that truth or even prior to that moment how the Holy Spirit is conditioning people to long for like Job did, a mediator, somebody who's holy and righteous and true that can bridge the gap for them because they know they failed themselves. I do know the hero worship that we see in the world. I do know the way that the people around the world are constantly reaching out to supposed messiahs and saviors shows you they're looking for this individual. I don't know to what extent, but what I understand from Scripture and what I understand from this very statement, the obedience of faith, is that the Holy Spirit is so actively engaged in these things in the lives of every person that they have a sufficient reason to be compelled, a sufficient witness to them to be compelled to belief in Jesus Christ and belief in the gospel to such an extent so that when they do not believe in it, it's an act of disobedience. It's an act of disobedience. That it's sufficient enough that on the day of judgment, their unwillingness to believe in these things will be set against them and be marked against them as a point of their judgment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul talks about when Christ returns with his angels. And it says at that time he'll come to judge all those who know not God nor obey his gospel. Don't believe. God is communicating a truth. We somehow think that there's this dark world where there's no light and God's not sending forth a witness that we're treading against a current that we'll never be able to overcome, but God by His Spirit is contending in such a way that people are accountable to Him to believe. In fact, the reason they don't believe is told us in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is instructing men and teaching men and the Spirit is contending with men and it's deep and profound and it's weighing in against their existential thoughts and their own existence. It's them and God speaking and they suppress it. But their suppression of truth is not an excuse for disobeying it or resisting it. So if the Bible calls for an obedience that is faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God is pressing an interest in these truths surrounding the gospel upon all human beings so that they are without excuse. Actually, if you think about this for a moment, I think it would be wrong to demand or command a person to believe or profess in something that is not apparent to them. In other words, it would be wrong to compel a person to believe in the tooth fairy. It'd be wrong to compel a person to believe in Santa Claus or, you know, some politically 
correct thing nowadays that a he could be a she or a she could be a he, that you've got to believe those things and state those things. And I think that's kind of wrong. It's coercive and manipulative. But at the same time, it's not improper to command a person to assert, for example, a little child on a math test that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's kind of evident. It's, it's not wrong on a history test. And by the way, I know it's the end of the school year, so tests are coming up for students, right? And it's, it's not wrong for a student to be able to know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's not wrong to compel them to those types of answers. So in the matter of faith, to compel a person to believe in something as an act of obedience, there must be something compelling to bring them to that point. And my point here is there is. God says there is. I have to believe him. I have to accept that. I actually am skeptical of true skeptics. I tell people that I'm, you know, an agnostic is someone who says that they don't really know if there's anything that's true, and I'm somewhat agnostic about agnostics. I'm not sure that I believe that there are people that don't know there's things that are not true, right? And an atheist says, well, I don't believe there's any God whatsoever. I'm atheistic. I'm a-atheistic. I don't believe there's an atheist. I think deep down inside they know. And they're pushing back on these things. And to some extent, other than showing that I might have some little bit of intellectual heft to carry along some of the argument with them so they don't bypass me altogether. Ultimately, the thing that's going to convict them are the truths that they know they're sinners. They're pursuing themselves a righteousness. By the way, why does an atheist become so vocal in proclaiming his ideas unless he's trying to establish some sense of righteousness above other individuals? Why? Because God has put that in his heart. He won't succeed at it. Not, not until he comes to the one who's died in his place the sinless, perfect one. These are the things we need to talk to people about. So when Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that a person is saved by faith and not by works, so that no one can boast, he's saying that salvation is not the outcome of any trust you can put in your own moral actions or efforts. It is a trust that you have to place in a work that has been done entirely by Jesus Christ. That's the propositional faith. And a work that can be done by him alone. That's personal faith. But that said, this trust that we're talking about, this faith that we're talking about, is in a sense a work. It is the one work or act of obedience necessary for your salvation. It is an act that is compelled by the evidence and the work of the Spirit pressing that evidence upon the hearts and minds of the individual. We looked at John chapter 6 in our scripture reading this morning. There you have the story of the Lord Jesus feeding the 5,000, taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying it and feeding 5,000 individuals. When they see it happen, they say, this has to be the prophet. This has to be the Messiah who's coming. And then they try to take the Lord Jesus by force to make him their king. What kind of king do you want? Someone who can multiply bread out of nowhere. What kind of leader of an army that would lead you in conquest over the world powers of Rome do you need more than anyone else? Somebody who can keep the bread lines going to feed your forces and your armies as you go out to war and battle. Let's make this man our king. Lord Jesus sees that it's going to take place. It says that he removed himself from the presence. He went up in the mountains. At the same time, he must have given instruction to his disciples. They went down to the boat. They'd come to that place in, and they sail across the sea. A storm comes up so powerful and so strong that all through the night, they're not able to make any headway. Four miles of trying to move along and not reaching to the other side still. And in the middle of the storm, the Lord Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And uh, they make their way across to Capernaum. Now, these individuals see that the Lord Jesus is not there the next morning. They see the boat that the disciples had departed in. They know Jesus didn't depart in it. They can't find Jesus anywhere. And 
So they gather up and they go over to Capernaum looking for the Lord Jesus. And when they find him, they ask him, how in the world did you get over here? How did you come here? And the Lord Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He simply says, you're, you're not coming to me because of the miracles you saw me perform, but because I fed your bellies, you want more food from me. And do they have a compelling reason to believe in him? Have they experienced enough of him to be compelled to faith in him? The Lord Jesus thinks they have. He speaks very plainly of the necessity that they believe in him. Here's what he says in verses 27 and 29. He says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now I remember reading this as a young boy. I had made a decision that I wasn't going to be the best football player, I wasn't going to be the smartest kid in my class, and so I made this decision, I'm going to be the best Christian. I'm going to find out what the most Christian thing to do is, and I'm going to do it. And so when I read that passage, I, I kind of sat up. I was pretty excited. This is going to give me information on how I'm to live my life and things I'm supposed to do to really prove that I'm a good Christian. And I have to tell you, I was disappointed in the answer the Lord Jesus gave. I think like they were. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. I already believe in Jesus. That's the answer to every Sunday school question, isn't it? You know, I've been taught that. <laughs> it's not to trust in your works. It's not to trust in yourself and your own labor. It's to believe entirely in him. That's a work. Did they have enough to be commanded to believe in him in this way? Was it unreasonable to ask them if they believe in this way? Christ is before them. The facts of his great command and miracles are before him. His power has been made known before them. The Holy Spirit has been bearing witness to him. And they are called to work of faith and so are we. A refusal to believe in Jesus Christ in the end is an act of rebellion against the evidence for faith and the prompting of the Spirit of God towards that faith. That's why it's called the obedience of the faith. And God is doing all that work ahead of us in the lives of people. That should, by the way, give us boldness and an ability to speak clearly to people who have yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ. The sense in which we have the advantage in the psychology and the internal working of what's going on in their lives because we know the Spirit of God is speaking to them, communicating to them. Here's the next thing we'll look at. It's the obedience that comes from faith. From this obedience that is faith or surrendered trust in Christ that then flows an ongoing obedience that is born out of that first act of believing or trusting. If a person says that he believes in Jesus as the Savior, but he's not living in surrendered obedience to his will... At some point in time, if we see this to be the consistent pattern of their life, we can rightly begin to question whether they've truly obeyed in believing in Him as Savior. We can say, well, I don't know if you've come to obedience to the gospel, a complete trust and surrender to this one as the one and the only one who can save you, because when you do that, all of a sudden, it opens up to your life all that He teaches, all that He says. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when the Lord Jesus commissions His apostles to go into all the world, which is a commission that comes to us as a church. He tells them that they're to go out, and there's two steps, you might say, in making a disciple of an individual. The first is to baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say what that name is. It's one name. It's the name Lord or Yahweh. It's the one true God. To the baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that act of baptism is a memorializing. The word baptize simply means to immerse 
of what happens when you truly trust and submit yourself in faith to Jesus Christ. At that moment, you are immersed into God. Your faith puts you and sinks you into him. You put your life upon him. You trust in him. And so the first act of discipleship is this full-board trust. You lay your life upon him by faith, personally, propositionally, and believe in him and are saved. But then he says after that, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Once you've immersed your life in him, can you ignore him? and his instruction and his direction? Doesn't that believing faith, that obeying faith, then lead you to an obeying life? Of course it does. That's the idea here. That's what's being called upon. Then we remember that the Lord Jesus who poured his life into us declares to us through his Holy Spirit that we are to love one another and we're to forgive one another and we're to serve one another and we're to make disciples of others commands us and directs us and that's the obedience that flows from faith so that James says in James chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 thus also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead for someone will say you have faith I have works show me your faith without your works I'll show you my faith by my works obedience of the faith that goes out from our life here's the third point and it's the objects of our gospel in other words who it is that we're sent to with this gospel, those that we're called to go out to. And the message of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, Paul says, is to go out, this message of obedience of the faith, this accomplishment that people might obediently believe in Jesus Christ and in obediently believing in him, obediently follow and obey him. This message is to go out among all the nations, he says, or all the Gentiles. What Paul will say in Romans 1, 14 and 15, you can just look over in your Bibles, Paul will say, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul is only being consistent with the impulsive call upon his life to take this gospel of Jesus Christ, which is manifest in the lives of people by their obedient faith, to take it out to the ends of the earth, to take it out to those who have never heard and and going to Rome, he's just being consistent with what he's been doing all along. He's driven by this burden to pay forward the good news of God that he himself has received. Just this winter, I had this opportunity to train 15 Indian pastors from 15 different states. Five of them have done the ministry with us in the past and have brought forth great success and have planted multiple house churches in their community and churches as well. And those five each brought two other pastors from two different states to come and join us in our training. And then when we were done, we provided the funds for the persons who had gained the experience before from us to go and travel and spend a week with each one of these pastors that we trained as they went out with that pastor and with a handful of people that those pastors in turn were to train to do evangelism among their unsaved Hindu friends. I could say this, that in all 10 places where they went, all 10 states, there was wonderful fruit. Last night, I couldn't sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night, and here's one of the pastors we trained named Noel, and he's standing next to a family, a Hindu family, that he's just led to Christ. And there's a picture of him. So I'm getting these posts now. It's quite exciting, almost on a daily basis. One of those that went out, as you know him, we've spoke about this brother before, Surrender Singh. He went to two different states, and he had wonderful fruit 
great joy. He would go with them to visit their, what we call their oikos, that is the people in their domestic relationships or their household that don't know the Savior. And their surrender would go and maybe give an example of how to dialogue with these people, understanding that God was ahead, working, convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a way in which they can ask questions that will evoke the awareness that God is already giving them by His grace that is the basis upon which they can carry forward a conversation and present to them Christ in the saving work. Anyhow, he would go and maybe do the presentation the first time and have this conversation in a home that might last for an hour and a half or so. And then the very next home they'd go to, now he'd turn to the pastor who he'd trained and said, okay, now it's, now it's your turn to do it. And now you do it and I'll watch you do it with the next family. And then the next house they would go to, he said, now, now you go with one of the people you trained and I'll go with another person you trained and let's do the same thing with them. And well, they had this tremendous fruit. It was exciting for him. And during that time, he began to get a burden for the Hindu people in Fiji, who he had been getting reports were turning back into a militant Hinduism and driving further to differentiate themselves from the largely Christian community of Fiji. And so in communicating with a friendship with a pastor on the island of Fiji, which is a long ways away from India, by the way, if you look in your map it is, surrendered scraped together what money he could find. And last week, a little over, just over seven days ago or six days ago, He flew to Fiji. He bought his return ticket for July 4th. He's going to be there for six weeks. He said, I'm going to come and we're just going to go visit your friends that you've been praying for and we're going to do evangelism. And all this week he's been sending pictures of people that they're leading to Christ. And now he's organizing with that pastor, other pastors that they can work with. And then they're going to do a training like I did with them. And he's wanting me to join them in that training at some point in time. And I had to figure out my schedule. When could I talk to people that are 18 hours ahead of you? and have these conversations and these trainings with them. And what drives him to do that? Well, faith. He's compelled to take that gospel out beyond himself to places where the need is for that gospel. And even though it's so needed in his own community, he's been equipping people and he's seeing the individual he's trained going out and fanning out into their communities, thinking, so where else can I go? Where else can I go where I know there are believers and I can help them to do the same thing? And To some extent, that's what Paul is doing here in Romans. He's just compelled to push this forward. At the same time, though, Paul lumps into those he is sent to, those who have already answered the call of God. He includes into those he's been sent to the elect themselves, who have responded to the call of Jesus Christ and believed in him. Romans 1, verse 11. Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. Now, what does that mean? It means the message of the gospel that comes as a loving call and is answered by the elect of God, these believers who are beloved of God and called to be saints, Paul says, still need to hear and live under the message of the gospel. They still need the gospel preached to them. Paul says, I'm not only going to the Gentiles, I'm not only going to the people who haven't heard, I want to go to you too, it's for you as well who are called of God. They still must render to God the obedience of faith. They still must learn to give to God the obedience that rises from faith. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, but then Paul includes in that mission these others, these believers, these saints, these called ones in Rome, they too, they too must be ones who become and receive the message of the gospel. And what does this mean? It means this. It means... As a church, 
We have to work together to take the gospel to those who have not heard it before. And yet it also means that our ministry and a body together of God's gospel must include a ministry of God's truth to one another. It means that we have to lay upon ourselves, the members of the body of Christ, this gospel message and this call to live in obedience to that gospel. Our lives must manifest in obedience to the faith. The other day, we had a men's breakfast together, and there's always a question that's asked. The question that was asked is, have you ever misread a situation or a circumstance or a person when you're encountering somebody? Have you taken information about a person, information about who they are or what they are, and met them, and then found out that you read it entirely wrong? That was basically the question. Basically, have you judged a book by its cover and found out actually it's not what you thought it was? Usually when he asks these questions, everybody's, you can see everybody's quiet for a long time because they're trying to find an example or a story they can tell. But when he said that, it was, my mind exploded with examples of it. I do it all the time. I hate saying it, but the place where it happens to me the most is when I'm counseling with believers that come to my office and want to talk to me. You know, there's issues in their life, they're struggling, they've got problems they're facing. And when they come to me, usually they don't tell me all that's behind their question or their concern or their issue. They conceal some of the more, you know, some of the items that might not reflect as well upon themselves. They might point to another individual, to the circumstance, and I jump to the wrong conclusions. And as a result, I oftentimes, when I chase out on my own advice and my own counsel, I oftentimes find myself giving them just the opposite counsel to what they need. So how do you mitigate against that risk? How do I mitigate against that risk? What have I learned to do? Well, I've learned to limit myself as much as I can, although I'm not perfect in this, to counseling people in the unmovable biblical injunctions of God's word. You can't always see what, really, what are the real matters in the lives of individuals, but God's word is unchanging, and God's word can search them out. And so... Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the vision of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So you don't know the real situation in most people's lives. They tend to leave out important details that might reflect poorly upon themselves. So what do we do? Well, we lovingly, patiently, Direct them into a trust and obedience to Christ regardless of their situation. We can get wrong in our own opinions that we form based upon the information we've received and what we understand. And so we learn to kind of suppress our own ideas and thoughts and we then speak softly and we try not to assert our own influence but we can resolve at the same time that above everything else what we want to be understood and heard is God's truth. Christ commands regardless of the situation or circumstance, because God's word will always hit the mark and Christ's teaching will never lead a person who submits to it into the wrong place, regardless of the situation. He has to be Lord. He has to be submitted to. There has to be a complete willingness on your part to live in complete obedience to Him, regardless of your situations. Is that in place? That's the life of faith. It's out of that that God's good news and God's gospel and God's relief comes to you. We have to be committed to these things. We have to be committed to these things in the church. 
Here's the conclusion, the goal of our gospel. Paul says it's all for the sake of Jesus' name. We want him to be glorified. We're compelled by more than just saving lost souls or helping each other out of troubles and trials or helping each other to stay true in their faith. That's all good. But in the end, our goal is greater than our own personal good or the good of anyone else. Our goal is the glory of God. It's the glory of our Savior. It's love for Him that leads us to these ends. It's easy to be motivated in such a way that our motivation gets twisted around just fulfilling duty to others or avoiding conflict or not feeling guilty or not disappointing expectations or making other people happy for his namesake. For his namesake. For his namesake. So that the name of Jesus Christ may be set with honor upon our lives and our actions and our work and our labors and our relationships. And so the name of Jesus Christ might be placed upon the lips of those who have yet to live in faith, obedient faith to him. But when Jesus' name comes forth from their lips, what a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful witness. The other day I was watching a video of an individual who had, just a video that was a short video, an individual who had received a certain particular triumph in their life. It, it didn't have anything to do with, anything to do, a spiritual triumph, just an occupational triumph in their life. And they were walking along in a crowd that was kind of happy around them, and you heard the person say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. That's what we want. Jesus' names upon the lips of those who know he is their delight, and he is the one who is providing, and he is the one that they have obediently believed in, and so he's glorified in that. That's why we do this. Well, let's think about how that impacts our lives. Let's lay on our bed at night and think about what are the things Christ is asking us to obediently do for him. Let's lay on our bed at night and think about those people we love, those believers we love, and what it is, they've come to us, they've asked us questions, they've expressed their concerns, we're praying for them. What is it that God, God's word asks of them? Let's encourage them with that truth. It's the gospel. It's the gospel played out. Let's bow our heads. Bibline people, people of the book, people of your word, people bound to the word made flesh, people who have found life in the Son, who found the answer for their sin, the source of all righteousness, the one who delivers from judgment and now brings us into everlasting eternal life. Oh, the gospel. We were compelled to believe by your Spirit's press upon us, by your grace, your enabling given to us. And now compelled to declare that gospel to the world and to one another and to live, to live in it. Lord Jesus, may we be faithful to these things and so glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.